Welcome to the Seamland podcast. I'm your host Seamland, and today we have a special solo episode. If you didn't know, then I actually studied anthropology in the university, and I thought that it would be pretty interesting for me to talk about my thesis, which was called Transcending the Divide in Oneself, an inquiry over body-mind dualism and the nature of consciousness in transcendental meditation. So basically, it's about how meditation affects your consciousness and sense of self from an anthropological perspective. In this episode, I'm just going to make my thesis into like an audiobook that you can listen to. If you like topics such as philosophy, psychology, neuroscience, quantum physics, and you'll also like to think about the nature of consciousness and the world around you, then this episode is going to be just for you. If you don't like these topics, then it might be a bit hard for you to listen to because the paper is written in quite academic words and phrases. But nevertheless, I hope you enjoy this unique episode of the podcast. This episode is brought to you by Katsu Training. Katsu bands incorporate blood flow moderation training that trick the body into thinking that it's lifting heavier weights than it actually is. When traditional weightlifting requires you to reach 70 to 80% of your one repetition maximum to stimulate muscle hypertrophy, then Katsu bands achieve that effect only at 20 to 30%. So it's perfect for treating injuries or used when you don't have access to heavier weights. Research about katsu bands also shows it lowers blood pressure, speeds up recovery from injuries, releases stem cells, builds muscle, burns fat, and prevents age the muscle loss. These things are amazing, and I use them almost every day to recover from my heavier workouts. If you want to try out the katsu bands, then use the code SEAM for a 10% discount at katsu-global.com. That's S-I-I-M at katsu-global.com. Preface this thesis draws knowledge from fieldwork done amongst the Transcendental Meditation Organization's Estonian branch located in Tallinn. It was established during the re-independence period of Estonia when the Soviet Union collapsed. The idea for my thesis originated from my year as an exchange student at Durham University in the United Kingdom. There I wrote a research project on how meditation could influence a person's state of consciousness. Before that, I had followed various meditative practices. Wanting to continue my work, I decided to make my thesis on a similar topic. The overall goal of my fieldwork was to conduct participant observation amongst the Transcendental Meditation Organization and to practice the technique individually. Me personally practicing the technique was an essential part to the thesis because it allowed me to gain my own subjective experience. Even though I had previously practiced other types of meditation, I approached this particular training as a full beginner and let myself be taught by my instructor. At the same time, my prior contact was actually beneficial because I made progress faster thanks to knowing some of the fundamental principles of meditation. Introduction The Mind-Body Problem I first came into contact with meditation when I just graduated from high school. Of course, I had heard about it previously, but it always remained to be this mystical and weird thing, something only yogis and spiritual people would practice. To be honest, my initial interest for trying it out came from this selfish desire to improve my mental performance, to sharpen the blade we call the mind. It worked. I was able to enhance my focus in life, the ability to concentrate for many hours, and be more present and in control of my behavior. As I continued my practice, I never had the intention of progressing further with it. That's why throughout the thesis, I take the Socratic position of I know nothing. The underlying conflict and tension of this thesis and my meditation experiences involves the notion of body-mind dualism. It was René Descartes who notoriously brought it to surface as it exists in science today by saying in 1641, I think, therefore I am. The mind-body problem is the problem of explaining how mental states, events and processes such as beliefs, actions and thinking are related to the physical states, events and processes, given that the human body is a physical entity and a mind is non-physical or the relationship between these two worlds of body and mind. Cartesian dualism takes the position that mental phenomena are non-physical, or that the body and mind are distinctive from one another, with the latter existing separately from the former. Most modern philosophers maintain that the mind is not something separate from the body, because there's not an identifiable meeting point between a non-physical mind and its physical body. An anthropological account on the mind-body problem represents more the monist view, the paradigm of embodiment postulates that, quote, the body is not an object to be studied in relation to culture, but is to be considered as the subject of culture, or in other words, as the existential ground for culture, end quote. 
Hence, it's already situated in and constituted by culture. Such an approach stems from the school of phenomenology, pioneered by the philosophers Edmund Husserl and Maurice Morleau-Ponty, the latter of whom wrote that, quote, The body is the vehicle of being in the world, and having a body is for a living creature to be involved in a definite environment, to identify oneself with certain projects and be continually committed to them, end quote. Phenomenologists take the position that consciousness originates from the body and is the body projecting itself into the world. Individuality can never be understood as long as the world is made into an object, because both universality and the world lie at the subject's core. Therefore, it can be thought that an individual's consciousness is never an individual thing standing distinct from the world and culture it is situated in. I found much inspiration and assistance from a phenomenological approach in describing the experiences of myself and my informants, which is why I have included it into my research. There have been many scientific inquiries and treatises on the topic of consciousness, but so far no consensus has been reached. The philosopher John Searle's common sense definition of consciousness refers to those states of sentience or awareness that typically begin when we wake up from a dreamless sleep and continue through the day until we fall asleep again, die, go into a coma or otherwise become unconscious. Consciousness and all other mental phenomena are said to be higher features of the brain caused by lower level neurobiological processes inside the brain. But this doesn't give answers to how and why we have phenomenological experiences. The most widely cited and influential thought experiment about consciousness is that of Thomas Nagel, who in his 1974 paper, What's It Like to Be a Bat?, argued that an organism has conscious mental states if and only if there is something that it is like to be that organism, something it is like for the organism to be itself. He uses bats to explain his thesis, because their mammals and their sonar system is similar to the human sense of vision. Although it would be possible for us to imagine what it would be like to fly, navigate around the environment, hang upside down, Nagel suggests that it's still impossible for humans to truly understand what's it like to be a bat, because their brains would not have been wired to be as such from birth. You would be a batman, a man with the body of a bat, but the consciousness and perspective of a human. The only unquestionable fact of our experience is our own mental activity, which means that we can only know what it's like to be ourselves. Nagel would say that an objective perspective on consciousness would be unfathomable because of our limited subjective experiences. This research also attempts to look into whether or not this statement holds true, and if consciousness does have any objective aspects to it. There have been other anthropological researchers who have brought evidence challenging Nagel's claims as well. For example, Rain Willerslev did fieldwork among the Siberian Yukagirs, who hold the belief that humans and animals can turn into each other by temporarily taking on another's bodies. When I asked my informants how to define consciousness, then they would say that it's indefinable and not found anywhere. Definitions are said to give something a form, restricted within a framework, but consciousness is formless and infinite. Something can be placed somewhere only if it is limited and bound. That which is boundless cannot be localized. The nature of consciousness is consciousness, to be conscious. But still, what I discovered during my fieldwork was that at least the practitioners of Transcendental Meditation and its discourse have created a conditional viewpoint of consciousness as a field. Here is what one of them named N said. Mathematics approaches all phenomena through distances and quantifying temporality and spatiality. Therefore, consciousness can be viewed conditionally as a field, which comprises everything and from which everything is made of. It is thus situated nowhere. This coincides with quantum theory, in which the structure of the universe is looked upon as based on events, not purely substance or matter. Each of these events inject knowledge into a physical system that bears information. Thus, the quantum approach to consciousness is, quote, underlied by a dynamical process of chosen course of action, which, on the psychological side, injects a new experience into the stream of consciousness of the human agent, and, on the physical side, actualizes brain states that contain the neural correlates of these experiences, end quote. The quantum universe is information-based, as opposed to the purely material one of classical physics. Individual entities are micro-local quantum fields amidst a much bigger field that interact with their neighbors, in anthropological ethnography, a similar idea is held by Robert Kapferer, who did fieldwork among practitioners of sorcery at Sri Lanka.
quote, it consciousness arises in a world of other conscious human beings who participate in the process of consciousness of any particular human being, end quote. Consciousness takes form in an intentional body, a body directed and oriented towards the horizons of its life world. Consciousness, in other words, while embodied, nonetheless extends beyond its physical confines into the world, which is fundamentally an inseparable part of the dimensionality of consciousness. These ideas have been a great inspiration for my research. More on these topics in Chapter 2. The terms used so far all look at the phenomenon in some way or the other, but to explain the phenomenological aspect of consciousness, or what's it like to be something, I will be drawing analogies from other fields that are not solely commonsensical, but also correspond with the hypothetical theory of consciousness as a field. Physicist Michio Kaku gives a space-time theoretical definition of consciousness. Quote, Consciousness is the number of feedback loops required to create a model of your position in space in relation with other organisms and in relationship with time. End quote. Feedback loops are processes of cause and effect between two parts that interact and are connected with each other. In my own words, it refers to possessing sentience about one's own body-mind consciousness and increased awareness of its position amidst other forms of sentience. The reason why I have chosen this description is that it correlates with the research done on consciousness as a unifying field, namely the aspect of smaller quantum fields being neighbored and influenced by other such fields. It also fits with the idea of Morleau-Ponty, who stated that, quote, consciousness is in the first place not a matter of I think, but of I can, end quote. When applied to Kaku's theory, it would mean that the conscious agent is capable of creating higher amounts of feedback loops that include the individual's own consciousness, but also that of other living entities. They possess the sentience and awareness. More importantly to the anthropological value of my research, it includes the notions of my informants as well, such as N. said, quote, In the case of humans, animals and physical objects, we have to look at different degrees of consciousness. Consciousness reflects in the nervous system and creates the quality of awareness. The qualities of the nervous system, its purity and ability to self-reflect, determine the concrete degree of consciousness and the experience anyone can have. There is no person with the same awareness. Therefore, consciousness and awareness are not strictly taken as the same thing, although at the final stage of meditation they meet." End quote. This paragraph goes straight into opposition with Descartes' dualism and it also challenges Nagel's claims. Although N does support the idea that there is no person or bad for the matter with the same awareness, his and others' experiences in meditation feel like there is some objective aspect to consciousness and awareness. This is the underlying tension I have come across during my research and experience. On one hand, while awake, it feels as if the body and mind or subject and object are divided, but on the other, especially in a meditative state of consciousness, these dualities seem to collapse. This is also the position I'm going to take in this thesis, namely that Cartesian dualism is almost like an illusion that we perceive as real at face value, and that consciousness can be conditionally looked upon as an invisible field of embodied knowledge and events that influence human behavior and their experience. My research is divided into three chapters, all of which give a slightly different perspective on meditation and how the individual experiences it. The first is about the phenomenology of transcendental meditation and what it feels like to meditate. I'm going to inquire how the subjects experience their bodies and mind, or, and whether or not there is any perceived dualism between them. In the second chapter, I will look at the collective field aspect of consciousness and how it could be understood. Lastly, the third chapter focuses on the practical application of meditation on the individual's life outside of practice, how it affects their everyday interactions, mentality and well-being. Researching and writing this thesis was a very fascinating and exciting process. I not only learned what has already been written on these topics, but also found out a lot of new things about myself. It was a journey of self-discovery and inquiry, during which I got to meet people striving to live extraordinary lives of greater self-awareness and bliss. Chapter 1. The Phenomenology of Transcendental Meditation Transcendental Meditation, or TM, is a technique founded by Maharishi Mahesh Yogi and introduced to the West from India in the late 1950s. The method is based on Vedic philosophy, which is described by the practitioners of TM as the science of consciousness. TM is practiced for 20 minutes twice a day, involving no effort, no beliefs or special lifestyle, and requires no specific mental abilities on the part of the practitioner. This I can attest to myself. 
before starting TM, I had been practicing different types of meditation for several years already, but I was positively surprised by the sheer effectiveness and the ease of this particular technique. In TM discourse, the purpose of practicing meditation is creating complete harmony, peace of mind, and using that experience to develop the same harmony and inner peace into the dynamic activities of everyday life. The technique is described by its users as easy, enjoyable, and involving no concentration, contemplation, or any type of control. Instead, it establishes a distinctive state of consciousness by allowing the mind to settle into a relaxed and calm state. Although the technique requires no religious doctrine or lifestyle, the TM discourse itself seems to involve a few specific beliefs and ideas regarding consciousness and spirituality. When I first walked into the apartment of my instructor, I could immediately see pictures of Maharishi and other gurus on the wall. There was also a silent soundtrack of Vedic music playing in the background. But this is just her own lifestyle choice. I had the opportunity to meet other people who didn't share the same level of affection towards these figures and were meditating mostly for his practical effects. TM incorporates a mantra, which is a simple Sanskrit two-syllable word with no significant meaning, such as nature, culture, I am, or any other two-syllable word. The mantra is just a means of focusing on something while meditating. You receive it from your instructor during the first ceremonial lesson. Although all the mantras can be found on the internet, everyone has their own that their teacher gives them. I never even thought of asking what the mantras of any of the other informants were because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. It's only a means of focusing on something while meditating. Once you start the meditation, you begin to repeat the mantra over and over again. At first, you say it out loud, but then you gradually lower its volume in your head. The sound is traced backward even further in successively finer stages in the thinking process until the finest stage of thought is transcended and the mind is left in a state what is called in Vedic literature as pure consciousness or samadhi. Maharishi described pure consciousness as a state of non-dual awareness between the subject and the absolute being of existence from which everything is said to stem from. People use words such as separate, distinct, infinite, unbound, timeless and perfectly silent beyond thought to explain this state. N said it's a blissful condition in which the mind has settled and ceased thought activity. Sometimes, when I would either meditate with my instructor or had group meditations with others, I would open my eyes as to see what they were actually doing. In all cases, their faces were lit up with joy and warmth. It definitely looked like they were having a blissful time. In my own experience, I want to add the aspect of stillness. That is what essentially happens. Muscles relax and thoughts settle. To reach this state of pure consciousness, one has to gradually refine the mantra down to its finer form of vibration, which is achieved by bringing one's full attention to the mantra and enclosing oneself from other perceptions in the environment as much as possible as to promote concentration. When you're given the mantra, you receive it at its most material form, just a word. As you start repeating it out loud, you begin to focus your attention solely onto its sound. The vocalization enters an automatic feedback loop. It's as if you throw a knot around it and start pulling it towards you. As the mantra gets closer to you, you need to use less volume and will thus lower the sound of your voice. This quote-unquote drawing in happens within us as well. Eventually, you stop saying it out loud and repeat it only in your head. The refinement continues further until the mantra begins to fade away. It starts to lose its physical form completely. You then don't actually even think about it or say it out loud either. Its conceptual form, something you could get a hold of with your mind, vanishes entirely, and all that is left is only its vibrational frequency. This is when you have entered this so-called pure consciousness, where no effort is required to maintain a meditative state. Despite there being nothing to trace down, you do not unexperience it or lose track of the repeated intervals either. It still exists and you can feel it being there, although completely silent. It feels empty in the sense that you're not attached to any sensory or perceptual experience and are simply dwelling there. But at the same time, it feels full in its bliss or blissfulness. This is my own phenomenological account that is very similar to those of others as well. As Maharishi put it, the object of experience fades away with the help of the mantra. When the mantra disappears, the subject or the experiencer finds themselves awake on their own existence.
TM is considered even by its practitioners just an effective technique, one of many, with which you achieve something that is supra-technical. It is a means to the end of pure consciousness, which can be achieved by any similar practice, such as other types of meditation or yoga. One of my informants, Andres, said, quote, TM takes you beyond the technique, where the technique doesn't exist anymore, and where there is only the attained state of being, pure consciousness and awareness, end quote. The advanced TMCD program practiced by following the regular transcendental meditation course is said to develop the ability to function from this silent mental state of pure consciousness on a habitual basis, and thereby activate this state of pure consciousness more effectively for greater impact on the individual and society. More on this in chapter 3. One of the biggest problems with Descartes' dualism is that it takes the body and mind as separate entities, whereas there is evidence to prove them being very deeply linked. In cases of brain damage, such as car accidents, drug abuse, or disease, the mental qualities of the person in harm are always influenced or compromised. In neuroscience, there is strong empirical evidence showing that cognitive processes have a physical basis in the brain, and that mental activity influences the entire physiology and vice versa. Thus, the two are intertwined. Anthropological ethnographies reveal similar findings. Paul Stoller's early work focused primarily on the magic, sorcery, and spiritual practices of the Songhai people. During his fieldwork, he discovered that the Songhai understand learning not in terms of mental activity, but in terms of the body. The stomach is considered the seat of personality. Songhai bards study history and power by eating the words of ancestors, and sorcerers learn their art by ingesting particular substances, by testing their flesh with knives, and by mastering pain and illness. This belief that the body and mind are deeply connected with each other is held by TM practitioners as well. In fact, it's experienced, especially during practice. The state of one's physiology has a profound effect on meditation. For instance, the food you eat influences the brain's cognitive processes, and the position one sits in while meditating can hinder concentration by making the practitioner focus on the discomfort. That is why my instructor and other more experienced meditators always prefer to be as comfortable as possible during their meditation. They would sit on soft mattresses, put cushions behind their backs, cover themselves with blankets, and be in a very cozy position. This was an especially interesting sight at the meditation retreat I went to in January. I asked one of the older men, Andrews, why he was so wrapped up, and he said that it helped to reduce the amount of sensory perceptions he would receive from the environment. When there's less things to focus on, it's easier to establish a meditative state. At that time, I would simply sit with my legs crossed while supporting my back on a wall, and it felt okay. Later, I started covering myself with blankets as well, and found meditation to be easier. Andrew said that it just takes one extra thing out of the equation, and it makes the experience more enjoyable. It is indeed increasingly more difficult to try and meditate in a busy apartment building while sitting on cold, hard floors than it is in a quiet room that is warm and cozy. According to my fieldwork observations, everyone has a unique flavor to their practice. What I have noted is that in order to make progress during meditation, I have to give in to whatever may come to pass. Rather than fighting or suppressing some hidden problems or memories, I let those memories arise from within my body and react however I feel appropriate. Some people will start to laugh or cry. During group meditations, one of the more experienced practitioners named Ants would occasionally start shivering out loud, shaking his body and loosening his vocals. When he did it in the first time, I didn't notice it, nor did I recognize what it was immediately. I was just there meditating next to him and in a quite deep meditative state. The surrounding sensory world had started to fade, but then I heard a strange sound. It wasn't something I could causally interpret, because it was just sound that existed there, but gradually it began to pull me out by robbing me of my attention. During that session, I didn't conclusively understand what it was, and asked if other meditators had heard anything. Ah, it's just Ants doing his thing, said Andres. Ants himself described it as an impulsive response to something he felt while meditating, whether that be physical discomfort or a thought about the past. It was a complete letting go and emancipation of the body. In general, others experience an overall sense of well-being and love. While meditating, these events of information stored within the body will begin to spontaneously rise to the surface. However, as you refine the mantra to its finer form, eventually you cease to be about anything and become silent. 
this is a still and pure state of consciousness that in my own phenomenology doesn't imply towards being unconscious but instead means that you exist with the world without any preceding thought or action and simply are there. It is the presence of non-dual awareness. According to TM practitioners, during meditation, the acknowledgement or recognition of a person's body and mind decrease up to the point where just pure consciousness remains in non-dual awareness. But this duality is experienced again after the mind returns from a state of pure consciousness into a state of waking experience. When I would sometimes talk with Andres, he gave me the impression that he believes himself to be having a soul that is neither the body or mind, a higher essence that is beyond this meat and monkey mind, as he says. His descriptions made me think of something analogous to a spirit. He said, quote, Although I'm conscious here and now, the same self-awareness is preventing me from experiencing the other state of being that is unity. Our body with all its sensory modalities and the brain's perceptions are already very limited. There are a whole lot more stimuli and vibrations which you don't pick up already, yet these quote-unquote higher dimensions exist, end quote. This made me think about Cartesian dualism again, because it slightly hinted towards some sort of a dichotomy. I looked it up again and found that Descartes' infamous phrase has actually been taken out of context. Instead of saying just cogito ergo sum, I think therefore I am, the sentence was preceded by, quote, we cannot doubt of our existence while we doubt, end quote. The statement is often given more compactly, dubito ergo cogito ergo sum, I can doubt, therefore I think, therefore I am. This quote says that the only thing we can be sure of is that we exist. We can experience what it's like to be ourselves, and we're having conscious experiences. If we can doubt of our experience, question our presence in the world, and recognize our own subjective experience, then we cannot deny that we are a subjective being inside the world. Although I would agree with that to a certain extent, that we are indeed individuals with our own experiences and sensory perceptions, this feeling disappears during deep meditation. In my opinion, the Cartesian divide almost happens just because we are self-conscious. Andres said, only because we are immersed in the world can we imagine ourselves existing separately from it. It's as if our analytical mind creates this distinction because we can identify successive experiences from one another. In pure consciousness, there is nothing to be experienced. It's pure and silent. It might feel as if one's body's boundaries begin to disappear. TM takes you into a state of non-specific condition, in which thought hasn't yet developed because of the lack of sensory perceptions. That is why it's easier to meditate in a quiet room with no distractions and focusing on the mantra makes it even more concentrated. According to TM discourse, this non-dual awareness is said to be realized through self-referral. Object referral means that the person is referring to objects in their environment in order to understand themselves. Self-referral is like a state of silent witnessing in which you're referring back to yourself. A great analogy to this given by one of my informants, Enno, is to think of a projector projecting images onto a blank wall. He explained it as such. The projector is any object in the world. Chairs, other people, the temperature, the floor, sound waves and light particles, etc. The projection is the sensory experience. The mental images you see in your head, the sound you hear, the kinesthetic feeling or pain, and the thoughts you have as a result of that. These mental images travel to your brain, but they're still objects. That is where most people would stop, but that is not the core essence of their true self. The real me is not the projection, but actually the blank wall onto which the picture gets projected. You are the perceiver, the pure consciousness, who can recognize that there is indeed an I, and that I am a subjective being in a world. However, the origin of that subjectivity is situated inside the field of pure consciousness. Enno's statement reminded me of one of the postulates of Merleau-Ponty's phenomenology of perception. As Merleau-Ponty argues, our perception ends in objects and begins in the body, meaning that objects themselves are a secondary product of reflective thinking. As meditators would say, on just the perceptual level or in a state of pure consciousness, we don't experience objects but are simply being in the world. In TM discourse and other spiritual practices, if there is consciousness but no object, then that is consciousness of oneself, or the true self, the source of all being from which everything existence stems from. This is said to be realized through returning to oneself. 
Whenever one of the senses grasps onto a stimulus, we create a perception that travels beyond the object of our attention and always returns back to the perceiver. It's a feedback loop that is first invited by our senses to be created, to travel to the object and get in intimate touch with it, then circled around that object and brought back to the source of the perception organ. Enno gave an example. The chair I'm looking right now is the object, I am the subject, and the link between us is sight or seeing. In my brain, there is the picture of said object. I am not that physical object, but this field-like phenomenon whose essence is consciousness. The picture inside my head is the actual object, not the chair in of itself, and the real me, the blank wall, is the subject, and between them gets created a relationship or a connection. Meditators say self-referential is about acknowledging that nothing else outside of myself doesn't exist, and that my own existence is the only thing I can be certain of. However, that self is existent just because of it being a body situated inside a world, which is indistinguishable from it. Thus the distinction between subject and object is illusory, there is just the self. My investigation had kept bringing me back to Morley Ponty's idea that consciousness always finds itself constituted inside a world or a field, whatever the words you may use, and that it cannot exist without it. The I is the wall, the background, and the mind is the projection. Increasing in levels of consciousness and creating more feedback loops allows the person to realize that. I am refers to the white wall behind the picture or behind the projection. The majority of people have simply forgotten about it. As was said by Enno, there are no obstacles in the way. Chapter 2. The Unified Field of Consciousness Amongst the practitioners of TM, there's a phrase, J Guru Dev, which translates into victory due to greatness in you. It refers to the notion of pure consciousness being the underlying source of all things existent and from which everything stems. The word Guru means great, Jaya means victory, and Deva is the one who is playful or light. Andres explained it to me. You know there is a big mind and a small mind. The small mind is your lower self, that is egotistic and disconnected. The big mind is the higher self, that is aware of the connectedness and ultimately selfless. J. Guru Dev is victory to the big mind in you, that is both dignified and playful, meta-aware but not attached. That is what J. Guru Dev means, victory to the greatness in you. And where is it? I asked my instructor in one of our later conversations. It is here and there everywhere, she said with a mysterious tone and a smile on her face. Her answer was perplexing, yet I intuitively felt like I knew what she was talking about. I had experienced it during meditation. Maharishi described it as the all-encompassing source of being that unifies everything living. According to TM Discourse, when one achieves the meditative state of pure consciousness, the mind settles into this source which can be conditionally looked upon as a field-like phenomenon. Such esoteric knowledge didn't give me a convincing explanation, but it reminded me of an article I read in one of my university courses a few years back, which could provide a more relatable and anthropological example. Bruce Kupferer, who did research among Sinhala Buddhists in Sri Lanka, and whose views I find useful for my own research, approaches consciousness as a collective field of shared intentions and interactions. He suggests that the Sinhali sorcery practices are based on the understanding that the consciousness of human beings is formed in the world. Kapher says, human beings are inevitably engaged in the webs of each other's intentional action, that the experience that human beings have of their worlds is of actualities of their construction. Intentionality refers to the mind's ability to be about or represent something. Understanding intentionality is vital for discussing consciousness that is not thought of as one, reduced to an isolated individual organism, and two, not merely explored through its second-order cognitive reflections or concepts. Kapfer writes, Consciousness takes form in the foundational fact of a unity of individual conscious human beings in a world already shared with others. To put it another way, individual consciousness emerges in a field of consciousnesses. It arises in a world of other conscious human beings who participate in the process of consciousness of any particular human being." End quote. Intentionality is fundamental to the construction and destruction of the psychological worlds of human beings. 
It's at the root of social worlds, inherent to that what Sartre called the magicality of existential and social life. The magicality of sorcery refers to a human-created world, a magical field of consciousness, in which human beings are the ultimate constructors of it and the intentional agents in it. Kafferer describes a story about a housebuilder who began seeing dreams about his own death and demise. The man started investigating into his social connections and discovered several indications of potential malignant magic and demonic sorcery. At one point, the victim went through a series of collapses and became virtually immobilized by consuming fear, which caused paralysis of his body. The paralysis of the body established a condition what Kapferer calls a world within being, opposed to a being in the world. As the imagination of potentialities about sorcery play within the experiencer's body withdrawn into itself, the imagination draws, as Kapferer suggests, the possibilities of external realities within the body of experience and actualizes them within the lived experience of the body. He includes other authors to explain his point further. Sartre uses the term chained consciousness to describe an aspect of the imaginary process that occurs at moments between deep sleep and wakefulness. At that time, the body is virtually immobile and consciousness within an immobile body is what he terms chained consciousness. Imagination is left by itself and can freely move without being checked by anything external, by one's own analytical mind, or by received perceptions and other reorientations of the body in motion that follow. The circumstance experienced by the house builder and highlighted by Kapferer is a chained consciousness that is nonetheless confined within the body. To a certain extent, this is what I feel what happens during meditation as well. The mind gradually diminishes the intentionality received from the perceptions of the physical as well as the social world and from the internalities of one's own consciousness by going through a series of progressive events in one's own conscious states. At more active states, the mind will still experience thought and other mental activity. This is a phase that was described by meditation researchers Sears and Travis as open monitoring, passively observing every activity of the mind and body in which one is left alone with themselves and will thus give rise to certain past experiences and imaginations. Kupferer continues by suggesting that, at least in the case of sorcery, chain consciousness is consciousness disembodied. With the body immobilized, it is no longer needed for the production of consciousness, and the body becomes the boundary of a consciousness that is given up to itself in a virtual dreamlike world that projects back into itself and which has no context other than the actualities it spins through its play of the imaginary within the closure of the body. It seems to bring rise to this re-emerging feeling of dualism that underlies the tension I write about. Yet, this is something I have experienced in meditation, but with a slight difference. During the refinement of thought, your physiological activity begins to decrease as well, making the point of separation between one's own body and the outside world more difficult to distinguish. In this state of pure consciousness, this is what I would describe in my own personal account, including those of others, as the feeling of oneness or non-duality. Rather than it being a state of chained consciousness, it transcends it and leads to the attainment of unity consciousness. However, this cannot be attained but realized because the inseparable interconnectedness between the subject and the world is already there. Kupferer concludes that the intentionality of consciousness within the field of consciousness, the space where the intentionalities of other humans intersect, is the very reason for suggesting within embodied experience that consciousness is something separate from the body. Having a body is the very reason why we are conscious and can have subjective experiences. But, like I described in chapter 1, I feel like it is somewhat of an illusion caused by us being capable of doubting of our existence. When in a state of pure consciousness, the body-mind-subject-object dualism dissolves, but it re-emerges again after breaking from it. This is the prevalent anxiety and tension of this entire thesis that still remains to be somewhat of a mystery to me. It seems to me that although our individual consciousness not being something separate from our body is still situated in a field of collective consciousness of the social world in which we intersect with other consciousnesses and whose thoughts and actions influence the way we perceive the physical world and construct our own sense of self. The phrase used by TM practitioners Jay Gurudev depicts the prevailing assumption amongst them about consciousness resembling a field of collective experience. When asked how to define the collective consciousness, meditators would much preferably use the term collective awareness, a group of people who have collective quality of some sort. Their nervous system becomes more receptive or reflective to certain intentionalities. 
This motivates them to cooperate within their frame of shared qualities. This is reflected on the level of the world, nations, nationalities, groups, all the way down to the individual level. Inspired by the sayings of Maharishi and resembling the findings of Kupferer, Enos said that every person's thoughts and mind are a vibration or a wave in the ocean of the collective consciousness. They're mutually intertwined and influential. The collective consciousness is the sum of all the consciousness of humanity, which is changing constantly. A lot of research has been done about the effect of TM on crime prevention and the broader societal level. One study done in Washington DC 1993 sought to see how a group of meditating siddhas could impact the city's felony and social stress rates, which tended to soar at summer. The project took place between June 7th and July 13th, and it was led by a renowned quantum physicist John Hagelin and comprised of 27 other independent scientists. Based on previous experience, the researchers predicted in advance that the meditators would reduce crime by over 20%. In the first week of the study, 800 meditators arrived to Washington and, unbeknownst to its residents, started to carry out group meditations. After an initial time period, and as the amount of those meditating grew up to 4,000, violent crime declined steeply, reaching a maximum low of 23.3%. The statistical probability of pure chance was less than 2 in 1 billion, and other possible causes such as temperature, weekends and police and community anti-crime activities could not be attributed to any of these changes. Soon after the project, crime rates began to rise again. In a preceding study during the Israel-Lebanon war, levels of conflict were reduced by 80% on days when the number of meditators were largest, with the effects of holidays, temperature, weekends and other forms of seasonality were being controlled. During my fieldwork at the meditation retreat, similar observations were being carried out. Anz is the head of the local fire department and thus had access to reports of crime, accidents and other incidents. Every year the retreat has been held, Crime rates plummet during that particular time period and remain lowered for a while afterwards. My informants suggest that TM establishes inner harmony, harmony in one's own subjective body-mind attunement, harmony between the brain's hemispheres, which begins to spread outward to other bodies. That is why at the retreat we were always supposed to carry out our meditation routines at the same time so that the effect would increase in magnitude. Although men and women were in separate rooms, us meditating together was said to leave traces of blissfulness into the surrounding field of consciousness. I don't know what to think of it, because it makes the whole notion of an invisible sphere even more mysterious, especially if you could influence it from a distance. Being perplexed by it, I remember I had heard of the work of John Hagelin, who was also one of the authors of the crime prevention studies. He has proposed that the unified field of modern theoretical physics and the field of pure consciousness are identical thus making him proclaim that consciousness is not only the result of our subjective experience, but also a unified and unifying field. To me, this seems to coincide with the findings of Kupferer and the magicality of human worlds, wherein humans are conscious agents within a social field. This suggestion may have a profound effect on the entire society. Maharishi predicted that as few as 1% of the population practicing TM or as few as the square root of the number doing the advanced TM city program together as a group twice a day would reduce the stress of the whole society and lead to greater harmony of the collective consciousness. Each level of society, family, community, city, state, nation, world is said to have a corresponding collective consciousness that results from the combined quality of consciousness of all the individuals in the society. According to the TM practitioners, the character of pure consciousness experienced during TM is ultimately like a universal substrate fundamental to the consciousness of each individual, and that the beneficial effects of that experience are thus shared to some degree by others. In addition to attempting to create more coherence here in Estonia, the TM organization also has an interesting history in regards to the effect they have had on our current society. When the Soviet Union was on the brink of its collapse, Maharishi saw an opportunity to spread his discourse and the practice of TM to the countries that began to gain their independence. He issued to send teachers to the regions who were supposed to train new practitioners who themselves would then start teaching others. The vast majority of my informants come from that era and have practiced for nearly 30 years. In total, it's said that as much as 20,000 people were taught the TM technique, but it seems not many are left. An interesting incident at that period happened during the attack of the Tallinn TV Tower in August 1991. The event was hectic and dangerous, on the brink of complete chaos. 
when the Soviet tanks were cruising on the Narva highway towards Tallinn, the citizens were standing on their toes in fear of an actual military conflict. After the tanks reached their destination, the situation was even more tense and stressful. According to my instructor, she and a few dozen other TM practitioners were sitting in a nearby brush and meditating together. They created harmony within the close environment and were trying to emanate it outwards as to make it spread. As they meditated, they focused on feelings of peace and compassion. In their own words, this influenced the collective consciousness of that place and established equilibrium within it, which contributed to the peaceful calming down of the event. Those who participated and with whom I managed to talk to believed that their inner coherence had a direct effect on the entire harmony of their surroundings. In their meditation, they influenced the field of consciousness, thus affecting everything and everyone in it. This is another mystery that I cannot explain nor conceive through like a third person's perspective. What truly happened at that summer day remains to be a puzzle. The feeling of non-duality is said to be difficult to explain and needs to be experienced first. Here's what Enno said. Intellectual or perceptual understanding and spiritual understanding are distinct things. You notice certain things according to your level of awareness. If you bring your attention to something, then it doesn't mean that you're actually perceiving it. Bringing your attention to the sun is not an actual interpretation of reality if you're simply creating an image in your head. In this case, you're being aware of the mental representation from your past history. Being aware and bringing your attention truly to something is about feeling as if you are one with the object. It cannot be explained yet again, but only experienced. This is possibly due to the unifying field effect of consciousness. You can bring your attention to wherever spot in the field, but that is not the purpose. The purpose is to experience the self, the pure consciousness from which everything stems. If the attainment of pure consciousness leads to self-referral, that is back to pure consciousness, then this could only be so if there indeed is an objective field that unites and unifies all things existent. On the flip side, this may also be an experience of the same world of intentionality and magicality, just phenomenologically different during meditation. There is no direct intentionality to be found during meditation, but only the state of pure consciousness. What I have found is that, as a result, you undergo a process in which the sense of self and other, body and mind, subject and object begin to merge together. You enter a state where your personal consciousness enters a feedback loop of chained consciousness between your own body and the surroundings. What ensues, as Kupferer would suggest, is consciousness disembodied, meaning that the boundaries of the body become not needed for the production of consciousness. You are not unconscious or dreaming, but aware of yourself through the unifying field of experience in a group meditation context, by finding yourself nowhere in it, but simultaneously all of it. Chapter 3. Everyday Enlightenment Through Self-Actualization If there is a universal aspect to consciousness in the form of a field, embedded in an individual subjective experience, then it means we're constantly within it. Like in the case of the existence of ourselves, we cannot doubt about the existence of the surrounding world either because of always finding ourselves being situated in and surrounded by it. But how do you experience this collective consciousness outside of meditation? In this chapter, I'm going to look how TM influences an individual's life when they're not practicing. How does their everyday awareness change and what potential effects it may have on the whole collective? It's important to immediately define what do I mean by everyday awareness and life. From a phenomenological perspective, it involves having subjective conscious experiences inside a given world, a term called being in the world that is used in anthropology as well. This notion stems first from the school of philosophical phenomenology. A giant of the discipline, Martin Heidegger, uses the word Dasein, which literally means in German being there, existence or presence. However, Heidegger uses this translation differently. For him, Dasein is a way of being involved with the world and having greater caring or alignment towards it, while remaining aware of the involvement between the nature of the world and the nature of the self in it. This is the authentic model of Dasein. The inauthentic form has sacrificed one's individual meaning and authenticity in favor of the public social milieu. All human beings are continually oriented towards authentic and inauthentic experiences, depending on to what degree the standards and beliefs of the society are accepted. According to Heidegger, Dasein's true character needs to be understood as being grounded in the state of being, being in the world. 
Dasein differs from everyday consciousness, everyday consciousness as in simply wakefulness. The emphasis is on the notion of engagement in the world as a continuous process of involvement with the world, mediated and experienced through the self. In regards to TM, meditation can have a keen effect on an individual's being in the world, starting with pure subjective perception and ending with a wider impact on the society as a whole. There has been a lot of research on the advantages of TM across all domains, decrease in blood pressure, reduced alcohol, tobacco and drug abuse. According to research, one significant impact meditation has on the organism is the reduction of cortisol, the stress hormone. If the body and mind are intertwined and inseparable, then the state of your physiology has a direct effect on the state of your psychology as well and vice versa. Excess stress will begin to cloud one's thinking processes and also prevents a person from experiencing the attunement with the world because elevated cortisol indicates a threat in the environment. One's bodily presence will thus be less of a priority. What is even worse is that it's a vicious feedback loop. The more stressed out you are, the more stress you will experience. The more stress you will experience, the more stressed out you will become. This is something I have noticed during my own practice as well. Whenever I have a less than an ideal night's sleep, I instantly feel less attuned with my body and surrounding space while I'm meditating. It just doesn't feel right. I get more distracted and suffer from a seeming brain fog. Outside of meditation, I may have a brief episode of losing focus or lacking compassion towards others. Therefore, I believe that is why it's important to keep practicing meditation every day, as to not lose the skill and to avoid going off rails. When it comes to solving intellectual tasks or facing mentally draining problems, the people I spoke with report many incidents where the solution spontaneously appears in front of them. Before picking up meditation, Enno said he would have to work hard to accomplish something. Afterwards, things started to fall into place by themselves. The necessary thoughts, mutual people, materials and information as if came to him by itself. Problems that seemed unsolvable at first found their solution. If he had no answer, Enno would simply sit down to meditate and the answer would come. TM Discourse states that the technique is not just a great way of conditioning the mind to run into sensory experiences more deeply, but an effective means for improving the functioning of the entire brain. There are many schools and enterprises across the entire world, in the US, Brazil, United Kingdom and Denmark, that incorporate meditation into the regular curriculum. In one of the studies, they compared the students at the Maharishi International University and those in other colleges. The results indicated a significantly higher rate of performance in almost everything greater time competence, inner directedness, spontaneity and self-regard. They also held higher values of self-actualization and saw the nature of man as essentially constructive and good. Beyond their individual level, they showed more synergy and capacity for intimate relationships. Probably the greatest change a person experiences after starting this practice is an overall shift towards becoming more aware and present while being in the world. My informants report feeling more aligned with their environment and in touch with other people. The sensation of unboundedness, infinity and timelessness experienced when in a state of pure consciousness begin to span into the practitioner's everyday setting as well. I like to describe it as being more at ease in the world and not being that disturbed by the unpredictable and unforgiving tides of whatever may come. Likewise, a person's entire way of being can get altered as they meditate, both in general as well as after having just practiced. Pierre Bourdieu in his theory of practice outlined the term habitus, which describes the collection of embodied positions, movements, dispositions and habits that the individual uses to perceive and fit into their social environs. The habitus is not expressed in practice, but rather subsists in it. According to this, practicing a certain activity develops a skill, a skill that is acquired through routinely carrying out specific tasks involving characteristic postures and gestures. In the context of TM, Skill is developed by following the routine of meditation, repeating the mantra, learning to silence thoughts and conditioning the mind to reach pure consciousness. All in all, the habitus is a particular modus operandi that organizes bodily sensory data and ultimately creates together the individual's being in the world. According to Bourdieu, these embodied dispositions are shared by people with similar social, ethnic, professional and religious backgrounds. To me, meditation is an embodied practice that incorporates both inner and outer world sensory experiences into a non-dual oneness. The internal and external experiences will also meet as the person attains a more meditative way of being, their habitus becomes a meditation. 
the overall optimal state of the practitioner is when the body-mind is or becomes all eyes, a metaphor for the optimal state of sensory awareness for the immediate environment. This type of extraordinary state is a state of being-doing, in which there is no thought and in which the self drops out. As Evan Thompson put it, one gradually suspends one's innative immersion in experience and develops meta-awareness, an awareness of awareness. This knowing that I know is the key to developing an authentic way of being, as the individual is aware of the self as situated in a world and can thus mindfully construct their own habitus. Such intentional development of a particular body allows the individual to live in terms of their own choosing. This realization reminded me of a quite popular piece of anthropological writing from which I found inspiration for this chapter. Nigel Rapport, in his book I Am Dynamite, says that the individuals possess existential power to create personally meaningful and viable environments and to traverse these in the pursuit of their own life projects. It is the notion of following an authentic design and creating one's own mode of being in the world, mediated through the self. Rapport continues, quote, Individuals who see their lives in terms of the pursuit of a certain life project, who see the meaning of their lives significantly in terms of the achievement of a particular goal or goals, can succeed in giving their actions a certain robustness, power and independence, such that they escape the influence of external forces and of other individuals who might have wished to have directed them in other ways." End quote. He uses a metaphor from a theory of atoms by analogy with the movement of balls on a pool table to describe individuality, a self-propelled projectile moving through space. It's being carried along a certain trajectory by its own energy and momentum, and is deflected from this path only by the gravitational force of another body, or when actually getting hit by another one. However, whether or not any real displacement occurs depends upon the body's own force relative to that of the other body. Rapport also uses the writings of Friedrich Nietzsche, one of the main examples in the book, to depict his metaphor in conjunction with the German philosopher's concept of will. Weak will suggests a deviation from the projectile's trajectory due to lack of gravity, whereas strong will characterizes those occasions when the multitude of impulses are given precise and clear direction, possibly coordinated under a single impulse. For Nietzsche, to be strong is to acquire, quote, the orientation of a straight line as against wave-like vacillations, end quote. In my own experience, I have definitely noticed that meditation has helped me to be more focused on creating my own life's project, and not deviate from it due to antagonistic forces. In chapter 1, I gave the metaphor of the projector to illustrate the concept of one's true self. The projection, the picture that gets projected onto the wall, is any sensory experience you get as a member of the society. You're inevitably going to come across the trajectories of others and get hit by their projectiles, but whether or not you're going to continue your path, whether or not you can see behind the experience and realize that you are the blank wall, not the projection, depends on your level of awareness and strength of will. I think that meditation is a technique that develops both and can be the ultimate tool in a person's mental hardware. Having a purpose and pursuing their chosen calling is characteristic to all my informants. They are self-aware and seek to live a high-quality life with greater joy, compassion and love at the expense of less suffering and ignorance. Their personal development is enmeshed with spiritual growth. Although TM is advertised as just an effective technique with no religious doctrines or beliefs, it still has a slight spiritual aspect to it. However, being skeptical about it myself, that spirituality can also be misunderstood and interpreted by the Western society in a wrong way. Maharishi describes the transcendental meditation technique as a process of systematic purification of the nervous system, leading to a continually clearer experience of the fourth state of consciousness, which is pure consciousness, and thence to a fifth state wherein pure consciousness is maintained along with waking, dreaming and sleeping. This state of operating from a state of pure consciousness 24-7 is what Maharishi called enlightenment. There are many spiritual practices that explain this term in their own way, which causes a lot of confusion as to what it actually might mean. Maharishi described the state of enlightenment, giving it criteria in terms of subjective experience and physiological conditions. It's the fifth state of consciousness, wherein the fourth state of pure consciousness stabilizes and remains present during waking, dreaming and sleeping. Maharishi's claims also correspond with those of some scientists who have researched TM. The physicist Lawrence Domash compares the state of pure consciousness in terms of quantum physics with a zero-entropy vacuum state with very low levels of excitation or mental turbulences. 
This ground state of mind is a phase transition in the nervous system to a position of order and correlation among neurons. With a method of EEG, the electrical activity of the brain can be monitored. It has been found that during the practice of TM, the brain waves from the left and right cerebral hemispheres become more correlated and similar in the spectral distribution of brainwave energies. The physiological aspect is an important feature to the individual subjective experience. As the mantra gets refined into finer stages, people report that spatial self-awareness undergoes a progressive expansion, something that could potentially explain the field-like aspects of consciousness. The reason why I included quantum field theory into this research was that it coincides a lot with the teachings of TM. In quantum physics, particles of matter are found to be excitations or vibrations of an underlying abstract field, and Maharishi states thoughts to be excitations of consciousness. In quantum theory, the basic state of least excitation, the vacuum state, of the field is characterized by least excitation, unboundedness and perfect order, which are also used to describe pure consciousness. However, this transcendence goes even beyond that. According to Maharishi and other sages, there are seven states of consciousness in total. In addition to the four mentioned already, they are fifth, cosmic consciousness, sixth, God consciousness, and seventh, unity or absolute consciousness. The transition at the fifth state is often called enlightenment in other spiritual teachings as well. This is described by Maharishi as an ever-present wakefulness or meta-awareness that is there even during sleep. Research on long-term meditators has recognized unique EEG profiles, muscle tone measurements, and rapid eye movement indicators that imply towards the physiological conditions of such a state. However, the Cambridge Handbook of Consciousness says that it is too early to state that these EEG measurements indicate any higher levels of consciousness. Whatever the case may be, establishing a more coherent brave wave pattern will allow the individual to experience a more grounded state of mind more frequently, which itself paradoxically is groundless. As a result, this phase transition will carry over to them becoming more in tune with themselves and other individuals around them. According to Maharishi, for the transcendental state of pure consciousness to become a permanent and coexisting part of waking consciousness, the two sides of the nervous system need to be functioning simultaneously while still maintaining the separate identities. In the early periods of meditation, this cannot occur because the function of the one inhibits the function of the other. That is why a person experiences only either transcendental consciousness or a waking state and a duality between them. TM Discourse says that by practicing the mind in phasing through this shift, one can overcome this physiological inhibition. Maharishi's description of pure consciousness and enlightenment coincide with Abraham Maslow's concept of peak experiences, which are moments of highest happiness and fulfillment. They are rare, exciting, oceanic, deeply moving, exhilarating, elevating experiences that generate an advanced form of perceiving reality and are even mystic and magical in their effect upon the experimenter. According to Maslow, peak experiences have several characteristics, but the elements are perceived holistically, creating the moment of reaching one's full potential. This striving towards maximizing one's potential is called self-actualization, referring to one becoming all they want to be and can be as an individual. Maslow used the concept in his theory of the hierarchy of needs as the final level of psychological development that can be achieved after the most basic physical and social needs are met and the person can start the process of actualizing their potential. In addition to peak experiences, self-actualizing people also experience many phenomena of flow. The term was coined by the positive psychologist Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, and flow state is a state of mind wherein one is fully immersed and engaged with the activity while losing their sense of time and self. Flow and peak experiences may see similar, but they're different. Peak experiences are the fulfillment one gets as the outcome of an external activity, ecstatic moments, moments of rapture, whereas flow is an internal mental process, complete immersion with a task at hand during which everything else fades away. I have seen that meditation can create both peak experiences and flow states. Peak experiences are felt especially moments after practice, when the individual has had a revelation or a breakthrough of some sorts, in regards to their self or purpose. I would say that the state of pure consciousness is a direct correlate of flow and its characteristics. However, in the examples of my informants, this feeling of flowing carries over to their everyday life outside of meditation as well. Although getting into flow and maintaining it requires conscious effort, the outcome of the activity is the activity itself, 
and it brings a greater feeling of satisfaction and fulfillment into the life of the individual outside of flow. Is enlightenment flow? Does meditation lead you there? These are the questions me nor my informants could give me answers to. Like I said in the beginning of the thesis, I know nothing. But I cannot deny that me and other people have had some mysterious yet fascinating episodes. In my own case, I can definitely attest to the positive benefits of meditation or self-actualization and having peak experiences. Using the words flowing through life is a great metaphor because it depicts the notion of being optimally engaged with the world while maximizing the potential of your life's project. That is the strong will that gives victory to the greatness in you. Conclusion The purpose of this thesis has been to investigate the practice of transcendental meditation and what kind of phenomenology it can provide to an individual in regards to the notion of body-mind dualism, consciousness and their way of being in the world. Based on the findings of my fieldwork and research, I have come up with several ideas about the nature of consciousness and TM. My conclusions show that meditation is an embodied practice that develops a distinct state of consciousness, which my informants call pure consciousness. It's a meditative state in which the body's physiological activity lowers to a point of reduced energy demands and thought activity settles down to very low excitations as well. Although the experience of this state is subjective, it is commonly described by feelings of joy, bliss and unity. It feels as if the distinction between one's body and mind, subject and object, self versus other begins to diminish and they merge together. Explaining it in words is very challenging and my informants say it can only be experienced. And that is it for the episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, you can check out the show notes and, you know, get the full paper as well because I didn't, I didn't talk about all the paragraphs. I didn't, left out a few sentences, etc. You can check out this uh, full paper and uh, the show notes at seamlun.com forward slash thesis. And all the show notes are going to be there. That's seamlun.com forward slash thesis. But other than that, thanks for listening. My name is Seam. Stay meta-aware. Stay empowered.